0: From Hypebeast Radio, I'm Jeff Staple, and this is The Business of Hype. A show about creative entrepreneurs, brand builders, innovators, and the realities behind the dreams they've built. Shepard Ferry has been someone I've been studying since high school. And I didn't even know it was happening. Maybe it was because I grew up in the Northeast, but I was immediately noticing in my travels between New Jersey and New York City this Andre the Giant sticker that was everywhere. It was all over the place, and I remember some of the quote-unquote cooler kids in school even had the sticker on their book covers. And at that time, I didn't know anything about Shepard. I didn't know much about Andre the Giant other than his wrestling career, and I sure as hell didn't know that he had a posse. I did instinctively know that this wasn't real, though. I knew it was a creation of someone's. It was a campaign, like a guerrilla marketing tactic, but marketing what? I had no idea. But I did understand there was something very subversive about it. Kind of like when you're looking at, like, Morse code. You know it means something to someone, but you just can't decipher what it means. Did understand one thing, though. I understood the effort. I understood that it cost someone time, money, and energy to make and place these stickers all over the damn city. And that whole thing intrigued the hell out of me. Damn, now that I think about it, that sticker might have been an important reason why I operate in street culture today. Of course, the person who made that sticker is our guest today. And besides just making that sticker, he's gone on to make other incredible things artwork, brands, exhibitions, and positive causes. I'd hear him DJing at a cool party, or I'd see him repping the highly successful brand Obey. I'd see him creating the artwork that would assist Barack Obama in becoming elected into the White House. And I'd see him also take the heat for it and risk going to jail, which actually he ended up doing 18 different times. And so as he wraps up his biggest exhibition to date and enters into this whole new world of augmented reality and art, I finally managed to get some time with the man millions would come to obey. I'm
1: Shepard Ferry. I'm an artist, activist. People might know me for my Obey brand, my street art, or the Obama Hope poster or the We the People posters I did for the Women's March Mm. in 2017. How do you categorize yourself? Like, are you an artist first or an activist first? I'm definitely an artist and designer first, but I I look at the model of um, a lot of the music I love, uh, The the Clash, Public Enemy, Rage Against the Machine, Bob Marley, you know, newer people like Mia, who use they use their art to say something as well as to entertain and and, uh, and you know and make something enjoyable. So uh, you know, there are some visual artists that work in that in that same way. Barbara Kruger, mm-hmm. um, Banksy, yeah. uh, and I'd, Robbie Canal. But I'd, I'd like to see more. I'm I just want to fuse picture making with um, saying something I believe in.
0: Yeah. And was that from the very beginning? Like back in you went to RISD, right? Yeah, I, I went to the Rhode Island School of Design and that's where a lot of um,
1: the ideas that had been brewing from high school because I got into skateboarding and punk rock, um, which, you know, rebellious, creative, do-it-yourself cultures um, with a with political points of view, you know, outspoken on things. But then going to art school was when I first realized it could coalesce. I saw, you know, uh, uh, making making homemade t-shirts that might say something or a sticker that said in the arms race, not the human race, Mm -hmm. um, as distinct from what I would do as an artist because I'm from South Carolina where it's it's very traditional art. Yeah. But then going to RISD, I was surrounded by so many people who were from different parts of the world with different perspectives. And then also, you know, getting a better education about contemporary art and going to a place like New York city and seeing, all the graffiti and, um, and, and, you know, being really inspired by just the, uh, you know, this anonymous expression that didn't have all the constraints that formal
0: art world art did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all those ingredients sound like they're part of like the melting pot of Shepherd fairy right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the graffiti part, when you saw graffiti for the first time, were you like, I want to be like, as, all encompassing, all city, everywhere like these guys was that like one of the early goals? Well, yeah, I, I mean, seeing pieces from you know
1: recognizing a tag and seeing it one place like oh that's cool, and then you see it another place, and then all of a sudden it becomes like a scavenger hunt. It's yeah. so so exciting to see it. And um, to me, the you know the idea that the the world was very large and intimidating, I felt anonymous. I knew that um, if I could make things that. I could put different places that, it, you know, was a, a way for me not to feel like I just dissolved into the background of the world. And um, <laughs> I, I, you know, it's, a. I think, I think, you know, a lot of things that are just, uh, you know, e- existential questions drive people. But for, you know, for me, um, a love of, of the freedom of graffiti, um, mm-hmm. the mischief of it. And, and then just feeling like I could make my mark on the world, but, um, you know, because, I didn't grow up in New York. I didn't grow up in a place where traditional hand style graffiti, wild style graffiti, was uh, you yeah. know was something I was exposed to. Right. I was making stencils and stickers and homemade T-shirts because of because of punk rock and skateboarding. So I decided I'm going to apply that same approach, that same philosophy to the uh, you know the art tools
0: that I already feel like I'm developing a command of. A lot of people ask me, how do they find what their passion is? They ask, how do I get into something? And more often than not, it seems like the answer is, you're probably already into it. Does drawing engage your mind? Does playing a musical instrument make you stay up all night, all the time? Are you obsessed with landing that skate trick? People always ask about how people get into something. And while it's vague, developing the interest and exploring it further is what happens if you let it. People want to know how Shepard got his start. And it seems like all his genuine interests naturally coalesced. He fused design, skating, music, and graffiti into what interested him further, bridging all of those concepts together into his own unique personal expression. The moral of this story? Keep exploring your genuine interests. Let's go back a little bit before you did the Andre the Giant sticker, right? Mm -hmm. Was there someone out there that was like, all over the world stickering you know um,
1: i wasn 't aware of anyone all over the world stickering, but I was aware of stickers that were pervasive in in Providence at the time when I was there there was um there's some other kids from RISD that made this sort of da-da nonsensical sticker that said the hip weed was tobacco with like a, a woman from the fifties holding a holding a cigarette, but it looked like a joint. Uh-huh. It was a, like a hand rolled cigarette, so they thought, Ah that's so funny. So rebellious Yeah. And um <laughs> but but then, you know, what um and then there was the th- do you know what the church of the subgenius is the bob dobbs the 50s guy with the pipe no, um, well it up. i had seen that a few different places stenciled and stickered uh-huh. and um that was embraced by uh, the guys from devo and you know all sorts of sort of you know college students but it's a guy a 50s guys with a guy with a pipe that looks um harmless yet malevolent at the same time <laughs> and um you know all these quirky things that that um to me it just they just piqued my interest and I thought you know i i 'd like to do something like that um, yeah. but really when i when I started the andre sticker thing, it wasn 't me thinking, oh someone else has created a a template that I want to follow. I, I'm more or less stumbled into that. I mean, skateboarding had, of course, when you went to skate spots and you saw some ground curbs and, you know, like an independent truck sticker mm-hmm. on a sign, you're like, Oh, okay, here's the, uh, you know, the, 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 uh, primitive markings of a subculture yes, I'm down, totally. you know, like, this is so exciting. And it's almost um, like
0: the Google pin drop, like right? oh, yes,
1: <laughs> a cool spot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Prior to Google pins. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, I, I was, I was tuned into. To, to sort of looking for those little subtle things in the landscape like that but I made the Andre sticker in an effort to teach a friend how to make a stencil and and then it just it sort of turned into really? this inside joke that that um that that just then ran amok um Really? Yeah, yeah, I was a, fr- a friend of mine Eric Pupeki who became a pro skateboarder later on. He uh, was staying at my house. I didn't have a TV. I was sub I w- you know subsidizing my meager skate shop income by making homemade t-shirts of the clash and and uh G- uh jimmy hendrix and uh-huh. all things like the misfits uh-huh. and um and He's like, I'm bored, man. I want to learn how to make a stencil. So I looked through the newspaper, and there was an ad for wrestling with with Andre. Yeah, and uh, I said, Ah, why don't you make a make a stencil of this? And he tried to. He tried to cut it with an X-Acto knife. Got frustrated. But we, me, as he's trying, we're like, Yeah, what what are we going to do with this? We're like, Oh, we're going to say you're not down with Andre's posse. Like, you know. And then, then if the person said, No, what is it? Like, Sorry, top secret. We can't tell you. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> sort of sort of like um you know, when the way skateboarders are, when um a band sells more than five cassettes, they're a sellout, so you gotta like <laughs> find the new band that sold under five cassettes at that point. <laughs> yeah. And um and, and and so uh yeah, it was it was just a goof. But then what I, I noticed was that when I gave a few of the skate friends some stickers and they ended up on boards and mm-hmm. I put some at skate spots and I had a fake ID so I was going to, to some of the um, music venues and bars and stuff around Providence putting them up. The next thing you know, uh, uh, the local uh, sort of hip free free paper, the independent paper, runs a picture of the sticker and says anyone who knows what the Andre the Giant um, sticker campaign is about wins uh, tickets to the living room show of your choice. The living room was where you'd see <laughs> – Bad Brains, The Ramones, suicidal tendencies. I wanted those tickets, but, but wait did they Did they contact you about that? No, no. They just <laughs> ran this as a picture, a, a picture of the sticker. So um, I was like, wow, you know, that's that's like fifteen thousand. Uh, I know the term media impressions now. I didn't yeah. then, but like they reprinted it fifteen thousand times, right. and um, so um, so then I thought, okay, putting something in public space that's not easily. Um, explained mm-hmm. it's really disruptive actually yeah. and because you know it's uh this thing wasn't exactly a tag and it wasn't an ad what like what what is it yeah and um and and so i really accidentally stumbled on you know the the a fascination with this project that you know initially i was trying to only appeal to my core group of skaters and punk rockers but then when i realized that it was that it was making people curious further than that, I decided I want to push it a lot further. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and, and I was also fascinated by the psychology of all the different interpretations, sort of like a, a Rorschach test, the inkblot test, where yeah. every, everyone brings their own baggage to how they interpret it.
0: Very interesting learning here from Shepard. You build it for the audience that interests you and see what happens. There's a long road to the middle, and often it's littered with people who tried to please everyone. But I think if you look through design history, advertising history, and the annals of music, you'll find that the greatest disruptors and innovators are the ones who didn't try to please everyone. They lived among their audience, and they didn't have to learn the language to communicate because they already spoke it fluently. The world came to Shepard Fairey. He didn't go to them. I have a side anecdote where I went to Japan with um, my mother, who was not a fan of graffiti or street culture. But we're waiting in line at Narita Airport through immigration, and you know the, the tension bar turnstile things like yep. that they have. Mm-hmm. So there's like Andre the Giant stickers on those. Yeah, I don't that's, know. If- that's me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I started going to Japan in '99 <laughs> like, a good those bit, are me. and uh, and I mean, yeah,
1: the destructible vinyl stickers, the ones that are really hard to peel yeah. off love those in airports because
0: thousands and thousands of people every day are
1: coming across those. So so my mom
0: was like, wait, this is the same sticker that's on the front door of your building in New York. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I know who you are, but she was like, how did that happen? Like she was confused about it, you know, like she's like, is this a brand like that just does this? I was like, it's a long story, mom, <laughs> but that's, what's cool about that. Even if you're not into the culture, it sort of piques your interest in some way. Cause you're just seeing it repetitively over and over again. Yeah. And, um, as, you know, especially pre
1: internet, um, you know, how things would, uh, affect people was largely through repetition, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, um, so I would run little ads in some of the skate mags and a couple of the punk rock magazines saying, you know, with a picture of the image that would say, uh, you know, for stickers in the lowdown, send a self-addressed stamped envelope. And so, you know, I was thinking in a viral transmission way before the internet, but of course, you know, once the internet came along, I, I, you know, I, uh,
0: seized on that. Yeah. Did you at any point when you sort—I mean—that story of you just like cutting out an Andre photo out of the newspaper is amazing. But were you thinking like this could be a brand? Like I could make a lot of money from this? Uh, because
1: I was broke for the first ten <laughs> years of my career, I never thought I was going to make a lot of money at anything. <laughs> but I did think I could have a lot of fun. Um, and and because the T-shirt is the cultural currency of everything that created me. I you know punk rock skateboarding. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, early hip hop. I loved, you know, the Public Enemy logo. I want. I made a homemade shirt of that logo. Um, you know, I loved Slick Rick, LL Cool J. Uh, you know, I wanted. So, so hip hop became part of the equation as well. But what I what I thought is, I want to do street art. I know that people like t shirts of things. I can sell t shirts to fund my street art. And mm-hmm. so I really thought that the the t shirt stuff was going to be just something that helped me to survive as a, uh, you know, a very enthusiastic um, vandal. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and, a bo- and a bootlegger. I love that you're just making your own versions of like band shirts. Oh, yeah, yeah. And now I get to actually collaborate with those bands <laughs> right? and do stuff that, yeah, yeah is, a, is official, which yeah. is totally surreal. I almost think in some ways like young people today, there's so much pressure for them to be like dope right out of the gate. That if they wanted to make like a bootleg Public Enemy shirt, something would inherently prevent them from doing so. But like you just went, you almost like honed your craft by being like a bootlegger.
1: Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I did. That's totally true. I mean, by by emulating a lot uh-huh. of different styles and trying a lot of things out, it's it's like a um, it's like a solo apprenticeship, just like by an aesthetic study. Um, trying to trying to mimic um, you know this logo or that logo or that style, but it all ended up being filtered through my sensibility as well. And yeah, um, yeah I, I think that being able to incubate your thing in relative isolation creates a lot of, a lot of freedom. Now you know everybody overshares, and there's a lot of um, yeah you know whether you're conscious of it or not. There's a, there's there's a lot of immediate feedback that can be paralyzing. Yes.
0: Judgments.
1: Yeah, judgments. And, um, you know, I I use all those tools, but I'm actually very grateful that I I was able to do stuff that I look back and and I'm kind of embarrassed of um, without a lot of people being Mm -hmm.
0: able to bring it back up later. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. So let's fast forward a little bit. Um, Somehow that campaign that you did manifested into the Obey clothing line. Do you remember the turning point where you sort of knew that, this is bigger than just me having fun out there, but this is like people are really ordering lots of shirts now or lots of stickers. Like, do you remember that turning point?
1: Well, um, you know, I started making t-shirts of first, the original Andre in 92 Mm -hmm. um, or 91 even. Yeah. And then I was doing it all myself until 96, but I, and I called it giant back then. It wasn't Mm -hmm. called obey, even though I had started to use the word obey in, in my work. Yeah. But, um, then in in ninety six I was too far in debt to
0: continue, so because of the clothing line, yeah,
1: yeah, because <laughs> okay. I was trying to go out to do all the trade shows and run ads in in slap and and do all the things that would compete with a, 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 the companies that had deep deeper pockets, and even though I'd done so much street work that a lot of cool people knew knew my stuff that had not yet translated into an interest in my clothing wares. Yeah. So you know, I had a I, I had cool shops places like X Large in L A. and um, you know even even uh, I think ninety seven was when Urban Outfitters first did sort of a test order that sold terribly, so they <laughs> never ordered again for several years. But um, you know, I, but it, it was a really tough thing. So. Then I, I moved to California. I worked with uh, Andy Howell, who had started New Deal skateboards, um, Element skateboards, mm-hmm. and uh, and Sophisto clothing, um, which was originally called Zero Sophisto. And then Jamie Thomas said, Can I take the Zero part and you keep the Sophisto part? Oh, wow. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I would. I was working with Andy. I was managing production for him while still doing my stuff, but it was, it was still failing miserably. But luckily in, uh, in 99, I started talking to, um, so, and, and I was all along making my posters and my street art and doing stuff. And, you know, if I could make a, you know, a, a, a few hundred bucks every quarter from, from doing the t-shirts. It was still, it was still helpful, but not very. Yeah. <laughs> right. But then, uh, in, in 99, I met my current partners with Obey clothing and they all had strong backgrounds in, in apparel, um, cut and sew production. And, uh, and then luckily, um, a designer, um, Mike Ternoski, who's still our lead men's um cut and sew designer. He had just gotten out of um fashion school in Philadelphia and he was a big fan of my work. So and he listened to the Melvins and he listened to Bad Brains and he skated and mm-hmm. and, and snowboarded. So, you know, I knew that he was somebody that I could really work with and having people who understood the business side, which I was never good at. Yeah. That was the turning point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for, for we really um we started getting it together in 99 it launched in 2000 and for the first three years obey clothing lost money Mm -hmm. and that was never something that i could have done on my own i i lived so hand to mouth there was no way i could do anything that was losing money yeah um but i you know built the agreement the licensing agreement so that i'm the creative director of the brand and i have i have creative control over the brand but i'm also very open to um the creative input from you know, everybody else that I work with, because everybody's got their specific area of expertise. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what I think a lot of people who have an internet, fo- uh, you know, an Instagram following, and they've got, they make a few shirts, and they think they're going to take it to the next level. And then they have the harsh uh, wake up call that when they try that it's it's actually a very, very tough
0: business, you, yeah. you know, firsthand. Yeah, definitely. Did you have trepidation when you were bringing in the partners? Like, because I know a lot of young creatives who start a brand are like this is my baby I don't want to give up any portion of this baby you know did you have that fear I did have that fear because yeah
1: you know I'm I do a lot of things I do myself I printed in my garage for years and years um because I want to do it my way I'm kind of you know control is really important to me but also reaching a lot of people is important to me so Mm -hmm. um you know, I, I thought it was worth taking the risk and structuring the deal in a way I was comfortable with, um, and and you know one of the things that my partners said to me initially was, you know that doing this may have a negative impact on your fine art career because you know the fine art world is um uh, is not is not too fond of of people who you know merchandise things, yeah. um, but you know m- my feeling was um, I relate more to the culture and accessibility of, of streetwear than I do to the culture of the, the elitism of the fine art world anyway. So
0: <laughs> fuck F them, ah, man. F, you could say fuck. All right. Yeah. Fuck them. <laughs> you know? Um,
1: yeah. and, and so, you know, and I, I'm always, I don't want to ever take um, the safe position on anything. If it's not what I genuinely believe in. Yeah. And, you know, I believe that all these, all these rigid categories for, you know, fine art, street art, streetwear, design, um, you know, activism that, you know, there's, there's always, um, in, in cultures of rule breaking, there's all these like, uh, referees and rule, you know, scorekeepers and rule managers. And it's so ironic, you know, but, um, so I'm like, yeah, I, I, okay. You don't like the way I'm doing it. Um, you know, I'm, I'm rule breaking right
0: here. Yeah, <laughs> <So>. Totally. <laughs> um, you also, at a certain point in your career, morphed into a like agency owner, right? You you like owned an ad agency, like a mini boutique sort of creative agency. Would you say? Yeah, I still do. Um, because
1: f- during those years when I couldn't make a living from the from the clothing stuff, I was doing a lot of graphic design for. Music labels and, and uh, movie studios and, and other apparel brands. Okay. Um, and, and initially the agency, I was partnered with a guy named Dave Kinsey um, who, who's a, a legend. A, yeah, I mean <laughs> he's a known artist yeah. and um, did a lot in skateboarding. We both did a lot in skateboarding um, and that was called called Black Market. And then he and I split in, in 2003 and uh, he kept Black Market and I formed studio number one. So I still have that agency. Mm-hmm. Um but i i focus almost exclusively on my own art except for pro bono projects that i do for different charities mm-hmm. that i care about but the the agency is great because we have uh you know we have commercial clients and then the agency also helps me to fulfill the myriad obligations i have with with my work from you know the from helping with stuff with the clothing brand to um production work for you know a, a different different things that I'm doing from web stuff to, uh, you know, signage for, for shows or projects. Um, and you know, I'm, when it comes to fine art, you know, I'm making the illustration, I'm doing the design, but Mm -hmm. there's a lot of, there's a lot of then ancillary uses of that stuff that it's not the best use of my time. You know, I screen printed my, my posters myself for years, but now I have other people screen stuff because that's not the best use of my time. So I'm always thinking about the best balance of, Earning a living, keeping my vision as pure as
0: possible, and reaching as many people as possible—is mm-hmm. the agency also good? Because I'm sure with your increased notoriety, like more and more corporations like want to be working with you, right? Is that like a good way to just, oh yeah, talk to the agency if you want me to brand your alcohol bottle or something?
1: Yeah, it it is, and um, you know, I it, it's touchy because uh, it's not um, you know, I'm a, I'm a I'm a target for the street cred police. And, you know, if I work with, a, with a corporation that's seen as sort of an, antithetical to my philosophy or my roots, it can be problematic even when I, I'm not the one doing, doing the work. So I'm actually very choosy mm-hmm. about the clients that, um, that I work with and the agency works with. We, we've turned down a good bit of work from things that would seem like, uh, you know, an ethical conflict to where, where I'm coming from with, uh, my messages of environmental responsibility or, uh, you know, any number of things. But, yeah. um, but yeah, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm super happy to employ several great designers who also, um, usually have art career ambitions and, you know, having that stable income has mm-hmm. allowed them to, yeah. um, really push their art. Cleon Peterson's a good example. Mm-hmm. You know, he worked, um, for me off and on for, for many, many, many years. Yeah. I don't know,
0: you, do you know his work? Yeah. 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 I also, and uh, I remember Flo Zavala back in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. F- you know, Flo Flow worked with us. There's, yeah. uh
1: You know, there's there's a guy, um, uh, Cisco that works with us. Has got a brand called Never Made. That's uh, you know, it's a small thing, but it's being carried a little bit by Zoomies and and Urban. And mm-hmm. he's uh you know he's, uh, working for me, doing graphic design, but also doing doing his brand. So you know I, I I'm happy t- that that there's this. What I think is a very healthy ecosystem around yeah. around what I'm doing.
0: How many people are at Studio Number One now? We have uh, around 20 employees. Wow, that's that's awesome. Thanks. Just employing 20 people to this, like you know, be able to empower their artwork and do creative work is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and we it is. We also have the gallery on our the first floor of our our building in L.A. called um, Subliminal Projects, and you know, there's a there's a gallery director whose full time job is to just work on the gallery and we, we show artists, um, some that are established, but mostly that aren't that well-known yet, mm-hmm. because what we want to do is turn people on to art. You know, the, the gallery business is a tough business, but having the space in our building where the overhead is basically covered by our other businesses yeah, means that we can, we can put stuff out there. That's a, a risk financially, but that, but that we believe in.
0: This is a good time to recap on how Shepard was wise enough to take the time to analyze his business from a dollars and cents standpoint and realize how his own weaknesses might stifle growth. This self-recognition is what may have led to the progress that he's made over time. That difficult decision to take on partners for the brand that he birthed, which allowed him to then focus on his strengths, was the catalyst that spawned where he stands today, employing a group with shared ethics a team that fosters positivity into existence through art what could be better than that so thus far i'm counting at minimum 3 major hats that you're wearing right you you have the obey brand you have studio number 1 and you have shepherd ferry the artist as a brand as well was there a point it, it seems like right now like if i sort of look at you it seems like you've got everything sort of like under control like everything is sort of running it feels like a well-oiled machine from the outside uh,
2: <laughs>
1: yeah i think it is i end up being stressed out a lot i work a lot of hours to to try to um keep it all running smoothly but it's um i'm lucky to have good people yeah. on, my, on my team who are um yeah they're really i couldn't do it without them and um so that makes things that makes things easier but still there's a lot that falls on me but um
0: but I'm a workaholic I love it do you remember a time where you felt like you were being pulled apart in too many different directions
2: well
1: when the obama poster took off and all of a sudden i could have been doing five interviews every single day of the week <laughs> seriously um <laughs> and you know there were uh, there were a lot of pressures um for me to be, be a voice. And I, I didn't, I didn't want to, uh, squander the opportunity to, um, be this bridge between mainstream politics that a lot of counterculture people are suspicious of. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and my audience, I wanted to, um, because, I mean, let, let's face it: the two-party system is flaws as flawed as it is. It's, yep. it's what we've got, and if you don't participate, then you leave the end result in the hands of people you frequently are going to disagree with. Mm-hmm. So you really uh, voting is so important. And uh, so, that, but that was a lot of stress. And then I ended up in the in the copyright infringement lawsuit with the Associated Press. After that, so um, yeah, I've never I've never sort of been. Um, at the center of a storm quite like that. And I was, uh, yeah, I had to start meditating.
0: Yeah. It was was pretty, it was
1: pretty brutal. But, um, but yeah, I also learned a lot from those experiences and, um, sort of what, what, you know, what my capacity is and Mm -hmm. to be smarter about, um, not, you know, not getting in the crosshairs of a, of a big media company like the Associated Press and, um, (laughs) yeah, yeah and this is from someone who's been arrested so it's like that's a big deal like Yeah I mean <laughs> I've been arrested 18 times and and you know a lawsuit was way more brutal than any of the arrests um but wow. but yeah I I feel um what I'm trying to do is you know I'm I'm trying to actually learn but then um I wouldn't say uh maintain a state of arrested development but of of um of youthful idealism mm. and um it's nice as I you know, get a little bit older to have a lot of experiences that I think make me smarter about what I'm doing, but also
0: with the same, with the same zest that I've always had. Yeah, that, that leads perfectly to my next question. And there's not too many people that I've interviewed on this show that I can ask this question to, but you being sort of like a quadruple level OG at this point, do you think about legacy? like longevity, legacy, the people you're sort of like bringing up, the people that you have to meet, like you are at this point where, you know, there's going to be college students and high school students studying your work. I do think more about it now. Um,
1: Next year will be the 30th anniversary of when I made the original Andre sticker. So that was, that was uh, June, 1989. Um, And, you know, I don't look, I don't look a day over thirty-five, so you know, <laughs> yeah. Started it when I was six. Um but uh anyway, um I I am I, I god to say matured just sounds so ugh, but um <laughs> I, I, I understand my responsibility mm-hmm. to use use the megaphone I have in a in a way that I'm gonna be proud of. Yeah. And um and and you know, not, not, um, yeah, just not squander it. I've got two kids, two daughters, 10 and 13. Our older daughter is a total streetwear head and DJs and, um, does, does her own fashion stuff. And the younger one does a lot of fashion stuff too. They like cool music. They're, they're cool. They're cool kids, but also, but that's not what I'm proud of. What I'm proud of is that they come back to me with saying, oh, well, there needs to be a travel ban on toddlers because statistically you're more likely to be killed by a toddler than a Muslim terrorist. <laughs> that's what your 13-year-old tells yeah, you. Yeah, that's what my 13-year-old tells me. So That's scary
0: as shit that she's yeah, yeah. that smart. <laughs> so
1: so because, you know, she she looks at um, xenophobia and, and goes, mm-hmm. this is not logical, this is not empirical, and let me prove it. And wow. uh You that's know, you yeah, be proud of that it for is, sure. It is really cool. And yeah. um, so... I, I definitely want to s- still be be fun and and cool with the stuff I'm doing, but I also am thinking about I, I am thinking about like the kind of messages I'm I'm promoting and the tone that I take, especially in this moment of uh, you know of uh, very um, a hostile, uncivil um, mm-hmm. times. You yeah, know, it's just
0: it, it's the degradation of of civility is a real problem. I think. Yeah. Yeah. It's it must be tough because you inherently work in an industry that's based on youth culture. You admit that you're an irreverence, yes, right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. and you are now sort of like not young, right? We're yeah. both not young. Yeah. We have to we have to both deal with this, I think. Um, and you're also, you know, you could say that everything that you've built is not irreverent. It's very well established now. And I I always tr- sort of grapple with like I never want to end up being like the old guy in the nightclub that's, like, trying to be down with the youth. <laughs> but I'm still, like, making stuff for the youth. So it's, like, this yeah. very fine line. I wonder if, like, if you sort of check yourself all the time. Like, am I am I trying too hard here? Or is this, like, am I still being, you know, like, relevant to the youth at the same time?
1: Well, I, I'm always open-minded to new things happening culturally. But unlike when I was 19, I'm not going to, like, basically cash all my chips in on that. Now, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like now I, I've got the, I've got the perspective of seeing, you know, in, in streetwear a generation is like four years yeah. of seeing like so many diff- different generations of things happen. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I look at, you know, sort of what I think is, um, has got, has got merit in the grand scheme of things, which I have a lot more perspective on now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and maybe I'll, you know, I'll get down with that, but, um, <laughs> But, but, uh, you know... um, Get down with the youngins. Yeah, drop crotch, jogger pants. I never got down with it.
0: And uh, I I look back and go, I was right. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) So speaking of getting down with uh, what young people are doing right now, you just recently announced um, sort of a new era in in the way you're exposing your artwork, right? Yeah. So Um, talk a little bit about um, the AR thing that you're doing yeah
1: i i had the biggest um non museum show of my career in uh november december of last year mm-hmm. and um where was, it was that? in in l a okay it's called damaged mm-hmm. and it was in a converted warehouse space with uh you know with with some nice white walls but it was a sort of a hybrid of um you know feeling industrial and street and then also feeling like a a you know a proper space to show art but i in that space i had um a printing press running, giving, um, giving away prints for certain people A newsstand with the newspaper I made called the Damaged Times with articles by lots of great writers. Um, I had a a billboard installation, a big mural and 230 pieces of art sculptures. So is it, you know, unlike most white wall art shows where you just walk in and look at a few pieces, this was a very, um, very tactile show. Mm -hmm. And, um, working with uh vrt inchers they basically went in and laser mapped the entire space and recreated it as a virtual reality augmented reality space and i've never seen anything like it i think it's well it is it's definitely the most extensive art show app that's ever been been created and it works on uh, you don't have to have an Oculus. You can, you know, you can also experience it on a tablet or, mm-hmm. or an iPhone, so you um, or, this, or Android. But you knew this was happening when, last year. Yeah. So uh, I met them. Um, I saw they had done a, a, an ARVR experience for the Carrie James Marshall show at MoCA, mm-hmm. and I was very impressed by that. But then w- when they when they showed me the first um, you know, beta version in progress, I just couldn't believe how um, realistic, the space felt. And, you know, when I make an, uh, an art show, that's that ambitious, I was working on that show for close to two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really proud of it. It, it, uh, to, you know, that it's up for a month and then it's gone. Yeah. It's, it's tragic in a way. Um, <laughs> right. I mean, I'm a street artist. I'm used to things going up and then, and then being cleaned or painted over, dissed, whatever. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, process is what's most valuable to me, but, mm-hmm if i could have
0: it both ways i'm happy about yeah, that you know yeah. pro the i enjoy the process and it gets to have longevity yeah. when um, you say it was your largest non gallery non museum show do you mean like you self funded that show yeah holy shit like you got the space you handled renovating it and making it
1: yeah I, w- I worked with um some partners from detroit called library street collective but we yeah we we produced the whole show together mm-hmm. fuck and um yeah so I don't know whether you you saw any photos from it, but it was a massive show, yeah. and it's it's the same space where the uh, Beyond the Streets show happened, and that had 120 artists in it, and I did it <laughs> yourself, myself, yeah. <laughs> but um, but anyway, the the you know the the damaged app is. Uh, it also additionally has narration by me, mm-hmm. several hours of, of na- narration, so what, during the course of the show, um, I would go there on the weekends and um, and I also you know i held and just impromptu say, if anybody wants to tour through the space like gather now i 'll talk about it and um, that 's so dope, but that would never happen in a museum or a gallery like yeah, but yeah. you know I, I'm, um, I, I legitimately care about the people I yeah, really yeah. do you know and, and um and I also put a lot of thought into what I was doing. So anything that wasn't self-explanatory, I love the opportunity to be able to explain it further. Um, I mean, I try to make my work fairly self-explanatory, but there are always layers that people aren't going to pick up on because they don't know me. They don't yeah. know exactly how I think. So having that component to the app, I think, makes it makes it really special. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that if I could have... A virtual reality walkthrough of, you know, Andy Warhol's factory or, you know, Seriously. any, any number of things and hear Warhol or Rauschenberg or Barbara Kruger, Keith Haring talking about
0: what drove them, I, I you know, that would be in, insanely valuable to me. It almost makes me so sad that you're saying that, that, that we can't have those now, you know, yeah, I mean, so, from and, those past artists that you mentioned, now yeah. we can have it, thankfully, but for, yeah, it's so sad.
1: For, for, you know, for as many, um, you know, I really believe that people creating things in the real world and, and you know, experiencing molecules colliding, visceral things and taking risks is important. So, uh, that you know, there are aspects of the safety of technology that I don't like, but this is an aspect of technology that I absolutely love, mm-hmm. that you're... Um, you know, you're getting the next best thing to an in-person experience with the work with the, you know, the added that you could hear me give the tour through the show, which very, very few people got to, even though thousands of people went through my show, yeah. you know, only a small percentage of them
0: were there when I was doing tours. Right. This is going to put like art educators out of business. Because <laughs> now, you know, like in art school, they were like, what he meant by, but what Cezanne meant here, what I'll, and I'm always like, how do you know? Like how do you know that's what he meant there, you know? Of
1: course. I mean, there's a yeah, there's a whole a whole industry around that. And I, I remember um seeing uh in art school at RISD a Jasper Johns um uh interview, a, you know, a, a a recorded interview, a uh-huh. video interview um where he's denying that there's that there's any um specific narrative to his target uh, paintings or his American flag paintings. And the art critic is debating the artist
0: and, and I'm telling it, you it means nothing. Yeah. <laughs> and
1: um, it's, you know, it's like, well, I'm, you know, I'm the art therapist here and you just aren't in touch with your feelings the way I can translate this. <laughs> oh my God. Um, yeah. But you know, so I guess I, they'll still have a job because they will they'll they argue will, sure, your yeah, own words. Yeah. E- exactly. Um, but you know, I, I I do think that that's a, um, that's a beautiful thing that it's, um, you know, you're hearing it straight from me and that in the app, you can go right up to go right up to the work and see the textures. I incorporate a lot of collage and layering and it never, it never translates, um, in photos because in photos, even on the, even on the web, you can't get high enough resolution stuff to really zoom in and see that stuff in a meaningful way but with
0: with the app you actually can Yeah. so imagine fast forwarding like 30-40 years when your kids are like our age right how are they going to be experiencing art like right now we're already in this amazing app in 40 years it's going to be like do they even need to go into real museums anymore well you know, I, I hope that they
1: will because I st- I still think that um, the experience with art as you know as an object, not just on a on a screen, is 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 most valuable in the way you know uh, light plays off different surfaces and um, mm-hmm. you know sometimes I use metallic spray paints in my work and you know from one angle you don't see it and then you move six inches and bam it you know comes to life um, you know that's stuff that you're never gonna get from a screen but I. You know, I, I do think that an appreciation for for art through this technology um, would lead to maybe actually more people going to see it in yeah. person. So I, I don't look at it as a substitute. I look at it as maybe um, something to stimulate
0: interest. Right, like a promotional vehicle so, yeah, to yeah, get you out. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. yeah, exactly. And uh, – you know, when, when I when I look at all all the things, um, whether it's like first person shooter games or all this other stuff that uh that the technology is, is making very realistic for people, um I'd love to see more of it focused on art. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Did you see Ready Player One? I haven't seen it. Oh, no, okay. is it good? It's good, but it just it's a very foreseeable, believable future where like, you know, a video game simulation could be so close to real life that there really is no difference at a certain point. So you could just spend it's, your whole days in the game. Instead. It's Matrix-esque. Yes, yes, yeah. yeah. And I think it's it's
1: pretty scary. Well, um, I, st- I still like going outside and feeling, uh, you know, the wind in my hair, and uh, <laughs> I still like putting stickers up
0: on physical yeah. you know poles um right yeah so well you mentioned some of the more sort of technical details of seeing art in person like you know the metallic paints and stuff yeah. like that but i'm actually such a romantic that i feel like when you're standing in front of a natural work there's like almost like pheromones or like some sort of like dna is passing through that like you can't get over a screen you know like when you go to a real show no doubt and um
1: one of the reasons I love street art and you know the scale of, uh, of of big big murals or daring pieces on the tops of buildings, which was one of my favorite things to like. I used to do pull ups all the time just so I could climb to good spots. Wow! Yeah, I like wanted to stay in really good shape <laughs> so I was a good climber. Yeah. Um, the 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 energy that is in those applications it is it's very primal when you experience it firsthand you it's it's like um without them being there it's like you're
0: you're you're in the presence of an untamed beast you yeah. know yeah yeah i mean your recent um vegas piece the one not on the strip but sort of off the strip yeah you did a hotel right yeah yeah i mm-hmm. have to say like when you drive up to that it's breathtaking it's like fuck that is massive <laughs> well, thanks. It, it, it was really windy, and the swing
1: stage was swinging like two to three feet left and right yeah. when we were when we were painting it. Um, but what hotel yeah. is it on? Just so people know to the visit. plaza. The plaza. Okay. Yeah. 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 The plaza in downtown Vegas. Um, but yeah, that's it. When when yeah. I do a piece that scale, it it's not just um, you know it changes the landscape, mm-hmm. and I mean that that's it's a dramatic impact.
0: Yeah, totally. Um,
1: and uh, yeah, uh, that, that's. Uh, you know what I got a I got a little taste of uh, the gateway drug was the 3-inch sticker but you know now I'm uh, now I'm addicted to big buildings. <laughs> I love it. Um <laughs> Do you know how many uh 3-inch stickers you've made? Ooh, um best guess. S- millions, I don't know. I I, I, <laughs> I you know I've um I've a few years back I just checked to see how many I made that year and it was around 900,000 just that year. So
0: Oh, so you're like at T- tens and twenties of millions of stickers. Yeah. It's a, a lot. And yeah. um, not counting the ones that other people make and put up. Too. Right. Right. <laughs> it, it, um, you know, it, it's the, probably
1: the most affordable and effective, um, you know,
0: real world viral tool. Yeah. Yep. And I love your, uh, your inventory management in your head. Like, <laughs> you, you still see one, and you still know if you did that or not, right? Oh, of course. That's yeah. fucking crazy. Yeah. If it's not, if it's not at a ninety
1: degree <laughs> angle, I always see ones that are slightly crooked. I'm like, God oh, damn it, gonna, this person. You know, it's not you. Yeah. I'm. I'm very. I'm very careful about about it. But um, yeah. I, I still seeing a city while. Doing street art or putting stickers up um I'm looking at surfaces uh in a different way, and you know it sort of started with skateboarding, like looking for curbs handrails uh banks all that stuff but um street art is the same thing where uh i think people, a lot of people can just like cruise through a city and not notice much mm-hmm. but if you're if you're looking for street art spots, you can't help but absorb all the details and yeah. and that's that's great right. I, You know, I
0: feel like I really get to learn the cities that I I walk around in when I'm doing that. What advice do you give a young person today, right, who has all this creativity and angst sort of bottled up in them? And now they have all the means today of technology to be able to get that out, not just stenciling and stickering, although maybe that is still one of the most effective ways. But how would you tell them this is how you should get your word out?
1: Well, one of the things I'd say is make sure that what you're trying to get the word out about is going to cut through the clutter mm. because, you know, now the the problem is all the white noise. Yes. They, you know, everybody's a media creator now. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, – yeah you have a lot of tools at your disposal, but I think first, just make something that is um truly memorable and your unique vision yeah and if you you know if you do that, then I'd say um using every different medium that makes sense, but for certain concepts um you know certain applications might might make more sense if i if I don't know what you're doing, then I can't tell you which ones those are, but understanding um you know, there's the McLuhan phrase, the medium is the message. So for me, uh, street art made a lot of sense because the idea of questioning the control of public space with, uh, with something even, even nonsensical and non-political was still a political act. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the, the medium itself was, was part of the message. This is a disruptive act of defiance in public space. Um, you know, for, for other, other people, you know, the content might be different. There's a different channel to plug into, but, making it memorable is really, really important. And, um, and then also I think, um, tenacity, you know, like, Mm. because there are a lot of overnight sensations that, that, um, that digital technology has allowed to happen. That's still, that's still the exception, but a lot of people, they, you know, they look at that like, um, it's, it's like being a lottery winner. It's, it's very or being struck by lightning. It's very unlikely. So, right. give people give up too quickly because they didn't have the same overnight success that someone else did, and then they they go, "Oh well, my my formula wasn't right the f- the right formula because it didn't yield that instantly." Yeah. But um, I th- I think a lot of times um, good ideas uh, they take a minute to resonate, mm-hmm. and uh and and so tenacity is important, but but also um you know being being honest with yourself that if what you're doing doesn't seem to be connecting that maybe it's maybe it's time to evolve it so if that sounds contradictory <laughs> A i little bit, but, i don't mean yeah. it to be but it's uh it, one of the things i learned in art school was that i'm going to get varied feedback from other students and and teachers so i actually have to become my own harshest critic yeah. about whether i'm achieving what i want and um and then and then really stick to stick to my vision um, by, but by being brutally honest with myself. So yeah. I think people, people need to do that, but um, yeah, it's, it's uh, it's such a cliche, but also networking with like-minded people. I do think that there's, you know, there's a reason why um, certain movements seem to sort of um, propel all the members forward because it achieves enough critical mass for, uh, you know, a, a concept, um, an aesthetic mm. um, to, you know, to to get attention for the people within that realm. I mean, I'm working with some of the people from downtown New York in the mid-'90s, uh, the visual mafia from the alleged gallery and, yeah. you know, uh, Phil Frost, Thomas Campbell, Aaron Rose, um, Mike Mills, all those guys. Um, F- Futura was still sort of part of that scene. Mm-hmm. It um, For me to be down with those people was uh, – you know, help really helped uh, me a lot. Yeah. Um, I think we all helped, helped each other. I was probably the least credible <laughs> member of the group back then. So yeah, yeah. Any, uh, any, anything I could hitch my yeah. wagon to, I was, I was down with, but, um, so you're basically saying have a posse.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> yeah.
1: And, and, and support each other. Right. You know, there's a, the, there's something really dark in the American psyche about like, I did it all on my own, bro. Mm-hmm. Um, but nobody does anything all on their own. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and so just like being um, being supportive of other people and hoping that, you know, you'll, you'll receive the same thing reciprocally,
0: uh, you know, just having good karma about what you're doing, I think is really important. Yeah. It's interesting what you said about tenacity because it almost feels like because of the tools that we have at our disposal, the tenacity becomes harder because it's almost like, I almost equate it to like you DJ, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Do you DJ with Serato or vinyl? Uh, well, I started with vinyl, but I use Serato now. Yeah, but I'm the same, right? I started vinyl, went to Serato, but like the Serato is almost paralyzing in the amount of options I have. Like I almost prefer just a bag of records. Right, right. You know, and I think it's that sort of tenacity where it's like, there's no other option. I have to make this work. But now it's like, oh, my Instagram didn't work. Let me try a Snapchat account now, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: No, it's true. Um, and yeah, all, I mean, all of, all of these different tools, I think, um, interface with basic human nature mm-hmm. and so um if you if you can't make it work on instagram and it's about visuals then you know <laughs> maybe maybe you
0: need to reconsider the visual not the platform yeah 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 <laughs> totally <laughs> well thank you man that was awesome that was a great interview yeah thanks, thanks for, you out for that yep. it was fun later hey thanks for listening to this amazing episode with the legend shepherd ferry As always, you can find out more about the show or listen to other episodes at Hypebeast.com slash radio. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a comment. Tell me what you think of the show. You can also reach out to me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Staple, and you can email any questions about the show to questions at businessofhype.com. And uh, Daniel, do we have any mail in the mailbag this week?
2: Yeah, man, there's always mail in the mailbag. This week's question comes from Fumi Takahashi. Hi, Jeff. I really enjoy the material on the podcast. I'm a 32 year old healthcare provider, physical therapist, but still shamelessly immersed in the world of streetwear and still rocking dunks to work. I currently work in the private practice sector for sports medicine, and even though streetwear and healthcare appear to be completely different domains, I definitely noticed some overlapping themes between the two disciplines after listening to your podcasts. In both disciplines, the importance of word of mouth is really vital to boost your business, and the amount of passion and love the individual has for his or her craft really matters. With that being said, I was curious as to whether you had come across projects where you wanted to collaborate with a discipline that seemed to be completely irrelevant to streetwear, but had the potential for greatness nonetheless.
0: Hey, Fumi, thanks for asking that question. Uh, So you asked if I was ever interested in collaborating with um, disciplines outside of streetwear culture. Uh, For me, actually, if you look past at the collaborations that we've done, um, a lot of them weren't in streetwear, and I kind of pride myself on doing things outside of the streetwear culture. Um, Probably one of the ones that I'm most proud of is uh, we recently did a collaboration with Shake Shack, uh, which was pretty dope. I don't know if uh, if you live near a Shake Shack, but if you do, it's one of the best um, sort of burger and fry, fry places that you can have in your life. Uh, and I was always a huge fan of Shake Shack uh, for many years. And then they basically walked into my store and was like, would we ever be interested in doing a collaboration? And at first glance, you would think that like a food business and a streetwear business really wouldn't have anything to do with each other. Um, but We went ahead and did it. Uh, I designed, quote unquote, um, a flavor of their shake, uh, and then that was exclusively available through um, all the local New York City-based Shake Shacks. Uh, We also designed a t-shirt, we did a a pair of special sunglasses, and then we did the whole release at Madison Square Park uh, before it went out to all the other Shake Shacks across New York City. So that was really dope. And it's always great because I'm working with the creators and the chefs uh, and sort of being cross-disciplinary in terms of like what they look for in terms of quality and and good design, you know, even culinary design in their in their case, and then from my standpoint, of course, I'm trying to bring like branding and product design and graphic design into the thing. So when you sort of mix all those aspects together, uh, I think something special really happens because I'm able to learn from them and they're able to learn from me, uh, and that's when a true collaboration really is the most beneficial, you know. So you'll you'll actually find very. Few instances where I actually collaborate with like another streetwear clothing brand. Um, I think it's a little bit different when you talk about sort of like ancillary brands that dip into street culture, such as like a Nike or a Puma or Beats by Dre or New Era. You know, those are brands that, while yes, they play in street culture, they are inherently not streetwear brands. So there's still that like cross pollination learning that's happening between two disciplines, uh, and that's the thing that I really enjoy about doing a collab. If if I'm just sort of like talking to someone who knows everything about making a t-shirt and I know everything about making a t-shirt, then together, you know, it's going to be really hard for us to learn something new, you know? So I hope that answers your question. And uh, if you guys out there listening have any other questions, feel free to email questions at businessofhype.com. The Business of Hype is made in collaboration with Bright Young Things. You can check them out at byt.nyc. It is directed by Daniel Novetta. And our editor is David Rogers Berry. I'm Jeff Staple, and you've been listening to The Business of Hype on Hype Radio.